Section 11 of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book 3, Chapters 9 through 11, The Quest of the Golden Girl. Book 3, Chapter 9, Sylvia Joy. Sylvia Joy! and I hadn't so much as looked at her petticoat for weeks. But I would now. The violet eyes and the heavy chestnut hair rose up in moralizing vision. Yes, God knows, they were safe in my heart, but petticoats were another matter. Sylvia, joy! Well, did you ever? Well, I'm damned! Sylvia, joy! I should have been merely superhuman, had I been able to control the expression of surprise which convulsed my countenance at the sound of that most significant name. "'The name seems familiar to you,' said Rosalind, a little surprised and a little eagerly. "'Do you know the lady?' "'Slightly,' I prevaricated. "'How fortunate!' exclaimed Rosalind. "'You'll be all the better able to help me.' "'Yes,' I said. But since things have turned out so oddly, I may say that our relations are of so extremely delicate a nature that I shall have very carefully to think out what is best to be done. Meanwhile, do you mind lending me that ring for a few hours? It was a large oblong opal, set round with small diamonds, a ring of distinguished design you could hardly help noticing especially on a man's hand, for which it was too conspicuously dainty. I slipped it on the little finger of my left hand, and, begging Rosalind to remain where she was meanwhile, and to take no steps without consulting me, I mysteriously, not to say officiously, departed. I left the twelfth golden-haired barmaid not too late to stalk her husband and her understudy to their hotel, where they evidently proposed to dine. There was, therefore, nothing left for me but to dine also. So I dined, and when the courses of my dining were ended I found myself in a mellow twilight at the Café du Ciel, and it was about the hour of the siren singing. Presently the little golden butterflies flitted once more through the twilight, and again the woman's voice rose like a silver bird on the air. As I have a partiality for her songs, I transcribe this hymn of the daughters of Aphrodite, which you must try to imagine transfigured by her voice and the sunset. Queen Aphrodite's daughter are we, she that was born of the morn and the sea. White are our limbs as the foam on the wave, wild are our hymns, and our lovers are brave. Queen Aphrodite, born of the sea, beautiful, beautiful daughters are we. You who would follow, fear not to come, for love is for love, as dove is for dove. The harp of Apollo shall lull you to rest, and your head find its home on this beautiful breast. Queen Aphrodite, born of the sea, beautiful, dutiful daughters are we. Born of the ocean, wave-like are we, rising and falling like waves of the sea, changing forever yet ever the same, 
music in motion and marble in flame queen aphrodite born of the sea beautiful dutiful daughters are we when i alighted once more upon the earth from the heaven of this song who should i find seated within a table from me but the very couple i was at the moment so unexpectedly interested in but they were far too absorbed in each other to notice me and consequently i was able to hear all of importance that was said i regret that i cannot gratify the reader with a report of their conversation for the excuse i had for listening was one that is not transferable a woman's happiness was at stake no other consideration could have persuaded me to means so mean save an end so noble i didn't even tell rosalind all i heard mercifully for her the candor of fools is not among my superstitions suffice it for all third persons to know what rosalind indeed has never known and what i hope no reader will be fool enough to tell her that orlando was for the moment hopelessly and besottedly faithless to his wife and that my service had been bespoken in the very narrowest nick of time having as the reader has long known a warm personal interest in his attractive companion and desiring therefore to think as well of her as possible i was pleased to deduce negatively from their conversation that sylvia joy knew nothing of rosalind and believed orlando to be free that is an unmarried man from the point of view therefore of her code there was no earthly reason why she should not fall in with orlando's proposal that they should leave for paris by the mayflower on the following morning orlando i could hear wished to make more extended arrangements and references to that well-known rendezvous eternity fell on my ears from time to time evidently sylvia had no very saving belief in eternity for i heard her say that they might see how they got on in paris for a start then it would be time enough for talk of eternity this and other remarks of sylvia's considerably predisposed me towards her having concluded their arrangements for the heaven of the morrow they rose to take a stroll along the boulevards as they did so i touched orlando's shoulder and begged his attention for a moment though an entire stranger to him i had i said a matter of extreme importance to communicate to him and i hoped therefore that it would suit his convenience to meet me at the same place in an hour and a half as i said this i flashed his wife's ring in the light so obviously that he was compelled to notice it wherever did you get that he gasped no little surprised and agitated from your wife i answered rapidly moving away be sure to be here at eleven i slipped away into the crowd and spent my hour and a half in persuading rosalind that her husband was no doubt a little infatuated but nevertheless the most faithful husband in the world if she would only leave all to me by this time to-morrow night if not a good many hours before he should be in her arms as safe as in the bank 
it did my heart good to see how happy this artistic adaptation of the truth made her and i must say that she never had a wiser friend when eleven came i was back in my seat at the cafe du ciel orlando too was excitedly punctual well what is it he hurried out almost before he had sat down what will you do me the honor of drinking i asked calmly oh drink be damned he said what have you to tell me i'm glad to hear you rap out such a good honest oath i said but i should like a drink for all that and if i may say so you would be none the worse for a brandy and soda late as it is when the drinks had come i remarked to him quietly but not without significance the meaning of this ring is that your wife is here and very wretched by accident i have been privileged with her friendship and i may say to save time that she has told me the whole story what happily she has not been able to tell me and what i need hardly say she will never know from me i overheard in the interest of your joint happiness an hour or so ago the man who is telling the story has a proverbial great advantage but i hope the reader knows of enough of me by this to believe that i am far from meanly availing myself of it in this narrative i am well and gratefully aware that in this interview with orlando my advantages were many and fortunate for example had he been bigger and older or had he not been a gentleman my task had been considerably more arduous not to say dangerous but as rosalind had said he was really quite a boy and i confess i was a little ashamed for him and a little piqued that he showed so little fight the unexpectedness of my attack had i realized given me the whip-hand so i judged at all events from the facts that he forbore to bluster and sat quite still with his head in his hands saying never a word for what seemed several minutes then presently he said very quietly i love my wife all the same of course you do i answered eagerly welcoming the significant announcement and if you'll allow me to say so i think i understand more about the whole situation than either of you bachelor though unfortunately i am as a famous friend of mine is fond of saying lookers-on see most of the game then i rapidly told him the history of my meeting with his wife and depicted in harrowing pigments of phrase the distress of her mind i love my wife all the same he repeated as i finished and he added i love sylvia too but not quite the same way i suggested i love sylvia very tenderly he said yes i know i don't think you could do anything else no man worth his salt could be anything but tender to a dainty little woman like that but tenderness gentleness affection even self-sacrifice these may be parts of love but they are merely the crude untransformed ingredients of a love such as you feel for your wife and such as i know she feels for you she still loves me then he said pitifully she hasn't fallen in love with you no fear i answered no such luck for me 
If she had, I'm afraid I should hardly have been talking to you as I am at this moment. If a woman like Rosalind, as I call her, gave me her love, it would take more than a husband to rob me of it, I can tell you. Yes, he repeated, on my soul I love her. I have never been false to her in my heart, but I know all about it, I said. May I tell you how it all was? Diagnose the situation? Do, he replied. It is relief to hear you talk. Well, I said, may I ask one rather intimate question? Did you ever before you were married sow what are known as wild oaths? Never, he answered indignantly, flashing for a moment. Well, you should have done, I said. That's just the whole trouble. Wild oats will get sown sometime, and one of the arts of life is to sow them at the right time. The younger, the better. Think candidly before you answer me. I believe you are right, he replied after a long pause. You are a believer in theories, I continued, and so am I, but you can take my word that on these matters not all, but some of the old theories are best. One of them is that the man who does not sow his wild oats before marriage will sow them afterwards, with a whirlwind for the reaping. Orlando looked up at me, haggard with confession. You know the old story of the ring given to Venus? Well, it is the ruin of no few men to meet Venus for the first time on their marriage night. Their very chastity, paradoxical as it may seem, is their destruction. No one can appreciate the peace, the holy satisfaction of monogamy till he has passed through the wasting distractions, the unrest of polygamy. Plunged right away into monogamy, man, unexperienced in his good fortune, hankers after polygamy, as a monotheistic Jew hankered after polytheism. And thus the monogamic young man too often meets Aphrodite for the first time and makes future appointments with her in the arms of his pure young wife. If you have read Swedenborg, you will remember his denunciation of the lust of variety. Now, that is a lust every young man feels, but it is one to be satisfied before marriage. Sylvia Joy has been such a variant for you, and I'm afraid you're going to have some little trouble to get her off your nerves. Tell me frankly, I said, have you had your fill of Aphrodite? It is no use. You're going back to your wife till you have had that. I'm not quite a beast, he retorted. After all, it was an experiment we both agreed to try. Certainly, I answered, and I hope it may have the result of persuading you of the unwisdom of experimenting with happiness. You have the realities of happiness. Why should you trouble about its theories? They are for unhappy people like me, who must learn to distill by learned patience the orum potabile from the husks of life, the peace which happier mortals find lying like manna each morn upon the meadows. Well, I continued, enough of the abstract. Let us have another drink, and tell me what you propose to do. Poor Sylvia, sighed Orlando. Shall I tell you about Sylvia, I said. On second thought, I won't. 
it would hardly be fair play but this i may say relying on your honour that if you were to come to my hotel i could show you indisputable proof that i know at least as much about sylvia joy as even such a privileged intimate as yourself it is strange then that she never recognized you just now he retorted with forlorn alertness of course she didn't how young you are it is rather too bad of a woman of sylvia's experience and i've bought our passages for to-morrow i cannot let her go without some sort of good-bye give the tickets to me i can make use of them how much are they let's see the calculation made and the money passed across i said abruptly now supposing we go and see your wife you have saved my life he said hoarsely pressing my hand as we rose i don't know about that i said inwardly but i do hope that i have saved your wife as i thought of that a fear occurred to me look here i said as we strolled toward the twelve golden-haired i hope that you have no silly notions about confession about telling the literal truth and so on because i want you to promise me that you will lie stoutly to your wife about sylvia joy you must swear the whole thing has been platonic it's the only chance for your happiness your wife no doubt will lure you on to confession by saying she doesn't mind this that and the other so long as you don't keep it from her and no doubt she will mean it till you have confessed but however good their theories women by nature cannot help confusing body and soul and what to a man is a mere fancy of the senses to them is a spiritual tragedy promise me to lie stoutly on this point it is i repeat the only chance for your future happiness as has been wisely said a lie in time saves nine and such a lie as i advise is but one of the higher forms of truth such lying indeed is the art of telling the truth the truth is that you love her body soul and spirit any accidental matter which should tend to make her doubt that would be the only real lie promise me won't you yes i will lie said orlando well there she is i said and god bless you both end of book three chapter nine the quest of the golden girl book three chapter ten in which once more i become occupied in my own affairs during a pause in my matrimonial lecture orlando had written a little farewell note to sylvia a note which of course i didn't read but which it is easy to imagine wild with all regret this i undertook to have delivered to her the same night and promised to call upon her on the morrow further to eliminate the situation and to offer her every consolation in my power to conclude the history of orlando and his rosalind i may say that i saw them off from yellow sands by the early morning coach there was a soft brightness in their faces as though rain had fallen in the night but it was the warm sweet rain of joy that brings flowers and is but sister to the sun they are at the time of my writing quite old friends of mine 
and both have an excessive opinion of my wisdom and good nature. That lie, Orlando once said to me long after, was the truest thing I ever said in my life, a remark which may not give the reader a very exalted idea of his general veracity. As the coach left long before the pretty young actress even dreamed of getting up, I had to control my impatient desire to call on Mademoiselle Sylvia Joy till it was fully noon, and even then she was not to be seen. I tried again in the afternoon with better success. Rain had been falling in the night with her, too, I surmised, but it had failed to dim her gay eyes and had left her complexion unimpaired. Of course, her little affair with Orlando had never been very serious on her side. She genuinely liked him. He was a nice, kind boy, was the height of her passionate expression, and she was, naturally, a little disappointed at having an affectionate companion thus unexpectedly whisked off into space. Her only approach to anger was on the subject of his deceiving her about his wife. Little Sylvia Joy had no very long string of principles, but one generous principle she did hold by, never, if she knew it, to rob another woman of her husband, and that did make her cross with Orlando. He had not played the game fair. There is no need to follow step by step the progression by which Sylvia Joy and I, though such new acquaintances, became in the course of a day or two even more intimate than many old friends. We took to each other instinctively, even on our first rather difficult interview, and very gently and imperceptibly I bid for the vacant place in her heart. That night we dined together, the next day we lunched and dined together, the next day we breakfast, lunched, and dined together. And on the next day I determined to venture on the confession which, as you may imagine, it had needed no little artistic control not to make on our first meeting. She looked particularly charming this evening, in a black silk gown, exceedingly simple and distinguished in style, throwing up the lovely firm whiteness of her throat and bosom, and making a fine contrast with her lurid hair. It was sheer delight to sit opposite her at dinner, and quietly watch her without a word. Shall I confess that I had an exceedingly boyish vanity in thus being granted her friendship? It is almost too boyish to confess at my time of life. It was simply in the fact that she was an actress, a real, live, famous actress, whose photographs made shop windows beautiful, come right out of my boy's fairyland of the theatre, actually to sit eating and drinking quite in a real way at my side. This, no doubt, will seem pathetically naive to most modern young men, who in this respect begin where I leave off. An actress! Great heavens! An actress is the first step to knowledge of life. Besides, actresses off the stage are rather brainless or soulful, and the choice of evils is a delicate one. Well, I have never set up for a man of the world, though sometimes when I have heard the lovelesses of the day hinting mysteriously 
at their secret sins, or boasting of their florid gallantries, I have remembered the last verse of Suckling's Ballad of a Wedding, which no doubt the reader knows as well as I, and if not, it will increase his acquaintance with our brave old poetry to look it up. "'You are very beautiful tonight,' I said in one of the meditative pauses between the courses. "'Well, thank you, kind sir,' she said, making a mock courtesy, "'but the compliment is made a little anxious for me by your evident implication that I didn't look so beautiful this morning. You laid such a marked emphasis on tonight.' "'Nay,' I returned, "'for day and night are both alike to thee. I think you would even be beautiful, well, I cannot imagine any moment or station of life you would not beautify. I must get you to write that down, and then I'll have it framed. It would cheer me of a morning when I curl my hair, laughed Sylvia. But you are beautiful, I continued, becoming quite impassioned. Yes, and as good as I'm beautiful. And she was, too though perhaps the beauty occasionally predominated. When the serious business of dining was dispatched, and we were trifling with our coffee and liqueurs, my eyes, which of course had seldom left her during the whole meal, once more enfolded her little ivory and black silk body with an embrace as real as though they had been straining passionate arms. And as I thus nursed her in my eyes, I smiled involuntarily at a thought which not unnaturally occurred to me. "'What is that sly smile about?' she asked. Now I had smiled to think that underneath that stately silk, around that tight little waist, was a dainty waistband bearing the legend, Sylvia Joy, number four, perhaps, or five, but not number six and a whole wonderful underworld of lace and linen and silk stockings, the counterpart of which wonders, my clairvoyant fancy laughed to think, were at the moment so entirely unsuspected of the original owner, my delicious possessions. Everything a woman wears or touches immediately incarnates something of herself. A handkerchief, a glove, a flower, with a breath she endues them with immortal souls. How much, therefore, of herself must inhere in a garment so confidential as a petticoat, or so close and constant a companion as a stocking? Now that I knew Sylvia Joy, I realized how absolutely true my instinct had been, when on that far afternoon in that Surrey garden I had said, with such a petticoat and such a name, Sylvia herself cannot be otherwise than charming. Indeed, now I could see that the petticoat was nothing short of a portrait of her, and that any one learned in the physiognomy of clothes would have been able to pick Sylvia out of a thousand by that spirited, spoiled, and petted garment. "'What is that sly smile about?' she repeated presently. I only chanced to think of an absurd little fairy story I read the other day, I said, which is quite irrelevant at the moment. You know the little idle way things come and go through one's head? I don't believe you, 
she replied, but tell me the story. I love fairy tales. Certainly, I said, for I wasn't likely to get a better opportunity. There's nothing much in it. It's merely a variation of Cinderella's slipper. Well, once upon a time there was an eccentric young prince who had had his fling in his day, but had arrived at the lonely age of thirty, without having met a woman whom he could love enough to make his wife. He was a rather fanciful young prince, accustomed to follow his whims. And one day, being more than usually bored with existence, he took it into his head to ramble incognito through his kingdom in search of his ideal wife, the Golden Girl, as he called her. He had hardly set out when in a country lane he came across a peasant girl hanging out close to dry, and he fell to talk with her while she went on with her charming occupation. Presently he observed, pegged on the line, strangely incongruous among the other homespun garments, a wonderful petticoat, so exquisite in material and design that it aroused his curiosity. At the same moment he noticed a pair of stockings, round the tops of which one of the daintiest artists in the land had wrought an exquisite little frieze. The prince was learned in every form of art, and had not failed to study this among other forms of decoration. No sooner did he see this petticoat than the whim seized him that he would find and marry the wearer, whoever she might be. Rather rash of him, interrupted Sylvia, for it is usually old ladies who have the prettiest petticoats. They can best afford them. He questioned the girl as to their owner, I continued, and after vainly pretending that they were her own, she confessed that they had belonged to a young and beautiful lady who had once lodged there, and left them behind. Then the prince gave her a purse of gold, in exchange for the finery, and on the waistband of the petticoat he read a beautiful name, and he said, This and no other shall be my wife, this unknown and beautiful woman, and on our marriage night she shall wear this petticoat. And then the prince went forth seeking, There's not much point in it, interrupted Sylvia. No, I said, I'm afraid I've stupidly missed the point. Why, what was it? The name on the petticoat. Why, what name was it? She asked, somewhat mystified. The inscription upon the petticoat was, to be quite accurate, Sylvia Joy Number 6. Whatever are you talking about? She said with quite a stormy blush. I'm afraid you've had more than your share of the champagne. As I finished, I slipped out of my pocket a dainty little parcel softly folded in white tissue paper. Very softly I placed it on the table. It contained one of the precious stockings, and half opening it, I revealed to Sylvia's astonished eye the cunning little frieze of Bacchus and Ariadne, followed by a troop of satyrs and bacchantes, which the artist had designed to encircle one of the white columns of the little marble temple which sat before me. You know, I said, how in fairy tales when the wandering hero or the maiden in distress has a guiding dream, the dream often leaves something behind on the pillow to assure them of its authenticity. When you wake up, 
the dream will say, you will find a rose or oak leaf or an eagle's feather, or whatever it may be, on your pillow. Well, I have brought this stocking, for which, if I might but use them, I have at the moment a stock of the most appropriately endearing adjectives for the same purpose. By this token, you will know that the fairy tale I have been telling you is true. And tomorrow, if you will, you shall see your autograph petticoat. Why, wherever did you come across them? And what a mad creature you must be! And what an odd thing that you should really meet me after all! exclaimed Sylvia, all in a breath. Of course I remember, she said frankly, with a shade of sadness passing over her face. I was spending a holiday with Jack Wentworth. Why, it must be nearly two years ago. Poor Jack! He was killed in the Sudan. And poor Jack could have wished no prettier resurrection than the look of tender memory that came into her face as she spoke of him, and the soft baby tears filled her eyes. "'I'm so sorry,' I said. "'Of course I didn't know. Let's come for a little stroll. There seems to be a lovely moon.' "'Of course you didn't,' she said, patting my cheek with a kind little hand. "'Yes, do let us go for a stroll.'" End of Book Three, Chapter Ten The Quest of the Golden Girl Book Three, Chapter Eleven, The Hour for Which the Years Did Sigh. This unexpected awakening of an old tenderness naturally prevented my speaking any more of my mind to Sylvia that evening. No doubt the reader may be a little astonished to hear that I had decided to offer her marriage, not taking my serious view of a fanciful vow. Doubtless Sylvia was not entirely suitable to me, and to marry her was to be faithless to that vision of the highest, that wonderful unknown woman of the apocalyptic moorland, whose face Sylvia had not even momentarily banished from my dreams, and whom, with an unaccountable certitude, I still believed to be the woman God had destined for me. But, all things considered, Sylvia was surely as pretty an answer to prayer as a man could reasonably hope for. Many historic vows had met with sadly less lucky fulfillment. So, after dinner the following evening, I suggested that we should for once take a little walk up along the riverside, and when we were quiet in the moonlight, dappling the lover's path we were treading, and making sharp contrasts of ink and silver in the river-bed, I spoke. "'Sylvia,' I said, plagiarizing a dream, which will be found in chapter four, "'Sylvia, I have sought you through the world and found you at last, and with your gracious permission, having found you, I mean to stick to you.' "'What do you mean, silly boy?' she said, as an irregularity in the road threw her soft weight the more fondly upon my arm. I mean, dear, that I want you to be my wife. Your wife? Not for worlds! No, forgive me, I didn't mean that. You're an awful dear boy, and I like you very much, 
and I think you're rather fond of me. But, well, the truth is, I was never meant to be married, and don't care about it. And when you think of it, why should I? You mean, I said, that you are fortunate in living in a society where, as in heaven, there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage, where, in fact, nobody minds whether you're married or not, and where morals are very properly regarded as a personal, private matter? Yes, that's what I mean, said Sylvia. The people I care about, dear good people, will think no more of me for having a wedding ring, and no less for my being without. And why should one put a yoke round one's neck when nobody expects it? A wedding ring is like a top hat. You only wear it when you must. But it's very sweet of you, all the same. And you can kiss me if you like. Here's a nice sentimental patch of moonlight. I really felt very dejected at this, not of course entirely unexpected, rejection if one might use the word for a situation on which had just been set the seal of so unmistakable a kiss. But the vision in my heart seemed to smile at me in high and happy triumph. To have won Sylvia would have been to have lost her. My ideal had, as it were, held her breath until Sylvia answered, and now she breathed again. "'At all events, we can go on being chums, can't we?' I said. For answer, Sylvia hummed the first verse of that famous song writ by Kit Marlowe. "'Yes,' she said presently, "'I will sing for you, dance for you, and perhaps flirt with you. "'But marry you? No. It's best not for both of us.' "'Well, then,' I said, "'dance for me.' You owe me some amends for an aching heart. As I said this, the path suddenly broadened into a little circular glade into which the moonlight poured in a silver flood. In the center of the space was a boulder some three or four feet high, and with a slab-like surface of some six feet or so. I declare I will, said Sylvia, giving me an impulsive kiss, and springing onto the stone, why, here is a ready-made stage. And there, I said, are the nightingale and the nightjar for orchestra. And there is the moon, said she, for limelight man. Yes, I said, and here is a handful of glow-worms for the footlights. Then, lifting up her heavy silk skirt about her, and revealing a paradise of chiffons, Sylvia swayed for a moment, with her face full in the moon, and then slowly glided into the movements of a mystical dance. It was thus the fountains were dancing to the moon in Arabia. It was thus the Nixies shook their white limbs and haunted banks of the Rhine. It was thus the fairy women flashed their alabaster feet on the fairy hills of Connemara. It was thus the Huris were dancing for Mohammed on the palace floors of paradise. It was over such dancing, I said, that John the Baptist lost his head. Give me a kiss, she said, nestling exhausted in my arms. I always want 
someone to kiss me when I have danced with my soul as well as my body. I think we always do, I said, when we've done anything that seems wonderful and gives us the thrill of really doing. And a poor excuse is better than none, isn't it, dear? said Sylvia, her face full in the cataract of the moonlight. As a conclusion for this chapter, I will copy out a little song which I extemporized for Sylvia on her way home to Yellow Sands. Too artlessly happy, it will be observed to rhyme correctly. Sylvia's dancing neath the moon like a star in water. Sylvia's dancing to a tune fairy folk have taught her. Glowworms light her little feet in her fairy theatre. Oh, but Sylvia is sweet. Tell me who is sweeter. End of Book 3, Chapter 11 End of Section 11